You got a problem, you don't know what to do. Your dreams are strange, and you're seeing things too. The world is full of mystery. Life's more than you can see. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She's a priestess. Hi. Um, today's podcast is going to be an interview with the fascinating and amazing shaman, witch, priest, counselor, spiritual advisor, all-around amazing person, Larry Sebades. This is my second interview with him. He is so fascinating and interesting. I thought I'd get him on again for a second time. And he's going to talk about a lot of things, manifestation, um, following your spirit, following your passion, uh, working with other cultures and um, other cultural influences. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. It's, you know, he's just fascinating. So we're going to begin that in a moment. Before I do that, I want you to notice there are zero advertisements on my podcast. This is my podcast. There's just little breaks for your brain to rest for a minute before we begin again. So I do that because I'm annoyed by by advertisement and so my what so here comes the one advertisement, which is I want to remind you that you can support the podcast and me um, and get a great one hour, most of them are about one hour class monthly for me. So the class I'm teaching now is going to be on patreon.com backslash ask pomegranate. That's where you can learn from me, you can take a class from me. That's also where you can once a year get a tarot card reading for me if you choose that option. And um, that's it. There is nowhere else currently where you can do that. Um, have any classes for me or any of that because I'm doing uh, art now, all y'all. So Patreon backslash Ask Pomegranate classes on, well, there's a lot of classes up there already. You can pick some Wheel of the Year trances. And then now I've started teaching uh, divine ones I adore because we all need a higher power in our life. Do you know what I'm saying? We're just puny little homo sapiens with a limited brain power that we don't quite know how to use. And what I'm going to recommend to you is that you come and learn about, uh, it'll, in the end, there'll be 24 different deities, divine ones, queer gods, that maybe through that process of listening to me teach, giving you a small short trance to go and visit the God and then homework. You can find a God or a goddess or a queer God that works for you. And when you're in times of stress, I don't know if you've been in a time of stress, but when you are, it's always good to hand, have a handy divine one to go and work with, to listen to, to meditate, to get guidance and to just go, yeah, right now I need a freaking red God. I need a horned one. To help me be an animal in my body. I'm talking about this one because it's the one I've just put out. So go to go to um, Patreon uh, backslash Ask Pomegranate and tell your friend, tell your friend who is annoying you with all the problems that they never can get over to go there. Okay, here comes Larry Sebades, the fascinating, wonderful, amazing Larry Sebades. You can ask Pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate.
Hi, welcome to the podcast, Ask Pomegranate. And uh, today I have with me the lovely Larry Sabates. Hello, Larry. Hi, Pomegranate. Thanks for having me on. Oh my gosh, it's so good to see you. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to introduce you. Uh, you've been on the podcast before. We had a very long, interesting discussion about queer spirituality and queer magic and um and you are also a uh, spiritual counselor and a magical teacher. So you do one-on-one -on -one work with people. I do. That um, helps them delve into their spiritual questions and take spiritual journeys. Would you say, is that what you do? I, I, I do try and work a journey ideally into every session. And the other thing that I think is important, as you know, from any talk, therapy, any talk work where people are verbalizing something they may or may not have verbalized before, the container it is spoken into makes a difference. So speaking those words into a container with a mystical flavor will have a different effect than speaking that those words into a container that is purely traditionally therapeutic. Yeah. I mean, you're not doing, you're not, a, you're not a uh, psychological counselor, or um, uh, emotional, like, you know, a, a, a trained emotional psychological counselor. in any psychological emotional techniques. You're not a therapist. Um, no. People get that confused. I think they go, I, I often go to therapy and when it veers into spirituality, I'm really glad, wow. but because, um, you know, it works for me. <laughs> I have a great therapist who's very psychic, so it works for me, but um that's not what you do, what you do, and this is what I used to do, and people get very confused about it, is um, provide a magical and spiritual space using magical spiritual techniques that might seem like counseling mm -hmm. uh, to shift people's, for me, that's what I was doing. I was trying to shift people's awareness and energy, put them in a different, help them get themselves to a different magical space that they can then dwell in. That's what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are, is that what you do or how? There's so many ways to think about it and define it. And um, today I'm thinking about just what I already said about the, the, the power. A lot of magic is the power of verbalizing something. And it's verbalized first internally and silently, and then it's verbalized externally and in these weird animal noises we make. And that somehow oh, yeah. you understand words. <laughs> language completely words. Words are completely amazing. And and so how somebody is shepherded through that transition is more my style than exactly what is the underlying process which I'm more, I, so, so very different from a therapeutic, traditional therapeutic process. Yeah. It is, it's a magical process. And so one of the ways, other ways I envision it is making the container big enough that all the parts that got stuck together can float apart and begin to rearrange. So um, again, that's the issue of the container. Wait a minute, making the container big enough so that, that all the parts can float apart, rearrange themselves. All the parts that are stuck together can float apart, rearrange themselves in a, in a, finish that sentence for me. In a way that feels better, in a way that works better, in a way that makes sense to the intuition. 
what's your what's your goal for people like when you are working with them or what's your goal for yourself even when you're doing this process mm -hmm. um the short but hard to define answer is more aliveness so, oh. so that changes the sensation of the body. It changes the sensation of the mind um, to be dwelling in the actions of aliveness, not the actions of blocking. Um, right. That's really good. Um, you know, it's interesting to me because my goal for myself anyway, and, and when I give readings, it's to navigate towards equanimity. So, uh -huh. because I'm valuing that as above all other emotions, mm -hmm. um, because I'm hoping the other emotions in my own life are going to be like temporary solvable. Uh -huh. And then we come back to equanimity. Uh -huh. And I, I just think spirituality is a really great way to get to equanimity. I can get there really quick. If I go to a spiritual space, uh -huh. like I can be disturbed, very disturbed and very upset and very overwrought about something. And then when I go into a spiritual space, I, I can forget all that for a little while and then go into equanimity. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in that um, as a kind of magical, that, that's what spirituality does, right? It brings you in a place of peace. Or it can. Or matters of definition. Um, I think fundamentally for me, spirituality brings me into a space of connection. Mm -hmm. And, and then I'm careful about how much I emphasize equanimity with other people because I emphasize it so much for myself. I have a bias towards equanimity as distinct from all sorts of less comfortable feelings. And one of the, one of my more recent ahas about myself is that I actually can stay quite uncomfortable and feel equanimity at the same time. Yes. I mean, because it's interesting. Sorry, sorry, I interrupt you because that's fascinating. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, because until recently, what I would find is I would turn my attention towards the uncomfortable thing and I would become comfortable. And the sensation that had been that I perceived as uncomfortable would disappear. And what I notice now, it's a softer mental touch or spiritual touch where I can feel the discomfort and not drive the discomfort away, let it, let it remain and still witness it. And, and feel that um, there's an element of peace in it, I guess, a, 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 an element of disidentification with, with the challenge. That's a description of peace, I think, mm. for me, um, mm. to be present, to be present in your body. That's not the easiest thing for me. And to notice that if you have discomfort, that that's mm. okay, that, that emotional pain even physical pain is just discomfort. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the biggest revelations in my life. It's like, that's just discomfort. And you're able to tolerate, this is something my therapist said to me, and you're able to tolerate discomfort, aren't you? And it's like, oh yeah, I am. Instead of panicking about it. Mm -hmm. And then from there, staying present, because denial is not work, work doesn't work. Or ignoring your emotional life doesn't work. But staying with it and allowing it to do what it does, but then also it's up to your triple nature. You've got a you've got a brain. Your brain can focus on things. You've got a heart. Your heart can feel things. You've got a body. Your body can sense things. Um, you have a well. This is more your triple nature. You have a spiritual 
spiritual body, which can envelop all of that. And you can stay present with all of those things and come into a place of equanimity, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so it's kind of what you're saying with different words. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Um, and I think spirituality is sort of a tool to get to allow yourself to be present with that discomfort, mm-hmm. right? So what, I'm sorry, Larry, it sounds like I'm lecturing you. I'm not lecturing you. I'm just, I'm in the habit of tell, uh, speaking to the listeners. <laughs> you know all this, what I'm saying. But, well, uh, it's useful, like I talked about how to verbalize things into a container. It's useful to hear them verbalized a different way. It's useful for me. It's thought provoking for me. Um, that, that feeling that, that truth needle, like, okay, that's not exactly my experience, but it's, is it exactly, is it the same as my experience? And feeling the compass needle move as you talk about it, because we know each other so well, but we don't always talk about this, you know, no. we talk about all sorts of things. Actually, um, I've never, I don't really remember talking too much to you about that, your process of healing. And, no, and, I don't know that we have. Um, yeah. It's funny. That's funny that we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what, what would you say is like one of your main interests around this? Um, Like what gets you going? What gets you joyful? What gets you going about this, this work that you do with people? Mm -hmm. You know, the work I do with people is fundamentally not different than the work I do with plants, with nature, with landscape, with it's, it's the main difference is I'm dealing with the human personality, but in terms of, of directly perceiving and interacting with the energy they're bringing forward, um, it's that it's, it's all the same sensation or the same ability to perceive the same, um, the same excitement in finding the worldview, the energy base, um, there's not a lot of language around this, but it's imagine every kind of plant has a program that it runs and you can, I'm saying this because I'm, I'm a horticultural nut. So I've, I do a lot of magic with plants and that every kind, every seed you could hold in your hand is, in a, is softly broadcasting the station of that species and all of the consequ- all of the little perturbations that that species tends to move towards. That's a, it's like a signal, it's like a radio signal, but it's got all this information to my body. And people are just like that, except people's signals are personal. We're so used to the, the overall human transmission that what we perceive when we perceive each other is the personal transmission about all the layers. And I can't sort out, I'm not the kind of psychic that has, that has decided to sort out every layer. I just see what comes up next and helps untangle it and, mm-hmm. and move out. And if somebody wants to become, the easiest thing in the world is to become more sensitive. So a lot of people who are wanting to move towards a, a more mystical outlook think they aren't sensitive. And then a lot of my job would be to say, well, you already are. Here are the ways I see you being sensitive. And if you want to be more sensitive in other ways, here's some exercises to open those gates up a little bit. When did you notice that you were sensitive? Like how old were you? You know, I had psychic experiences when I was very young, but I didn't have, but they weren't consistent. And I wasn't somebody who was consistently psychic. 
um, I think I might have been, I would have lots of synchronicities and sometimes really powerful ones, but I don't know that I really honed my, my own sensitivity until my 20s or early 30s. It was, it was a continuum. You know, I, I dipped in in my teens. I dipped in again in my 20s. And I sort of came, came here to stay in my, around the age of 30. And, and um, so did you have any stuff like that when you were a little kid? Where you, could, you started being, yeah, you know, seeing how sensitive you, know, you were? I, I think in retrospect, I'm really, it would be interesting if there was anybody more sensitive around when I was little. Because I, I did, sometimes, sometimes I knew things, you know. I would know. I would think somebody had said something they hadn't said. That was a common one. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have the experience of somebody that was near me, even though I didn't know what had triggered it. So I would walk into a room where a joke had been told, and I couldn't help but laugh. But I had no idea what the joke was. Um, but the other thing that was happening is between the ages of like five and ten or twelve, a lot of my ex- memories were from the ceiling, and so I part of my soul was floating around, not in my body. Yeah. No wonder yeah. I was clumsy. Huh? No wonder I was so clumsy. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I have that experience too. I spent a lot of spent, I was even play with it. I would go, Oh, I'm going to swing up to the ceiling. I would just be sitting quietly in a chair. So as to not attract attention mm-hmm. from anybody. And um, I would just swing up to the ceiling and then I would swing back down through the floor and then oh. swing back to the ceiling. <laughs> I would just do this over and over again as a way to entertain myself. Uh-huh. I think I was actually training myself at that point. That's much more volition than I remember. I remember sitting at, at the table trying to do my homework and then I would get distracted by something and then I get distracted by something else. And pretty soon my perspective had changed and I was, you know, I'd wandered away and I was seeing from a different perspective. Um, but it wasn't volitional in that way. So do you, can you recall any exercises that you use to help people become, be a whole hone their sensitivity? Do, is it more like really regulated to that one person or is there something is, that you could share with us to help people um, connect with their own sensitivity? Um. The, the usual, well, there's, there's a, there is a bit of a sequence. It, there isn't, I don't have a, a set sequence, but one of the first things I would do is saying, what are you getting out of not being sensitive? Mm. And are you, are you really interested in making the commitment of having the consequences of being sensitive? Yeah. And, and, and yeah, you know, you can say I'm only willing to be this sensitive and that might work, but but like any physical skill, it's a physical skill, like any physical skill, there's a, there's a huge range of how quickly we can learn it and how quickly we can control it. Right. So the big one for most people is actually understanding the, the way in which they're protecting themselves from perception. Say that again. For most people, the way to become more sensitive is to, is to understand the concept that they're already protecting themselves by diminishing perception. Okay. You're already, you're protecting yourself by diminishing perception. And And of course you're encouraged culturally to do that. We're, 
we're, yes, we're absolutely brainwashed culturally to do that. Yeah. I call it hypnosis, the cultural hypnosis. There's a number of times when I would witness paranormal phenomenon with other people and people might comment on it. And then 10 minutes later, they would have forgotten it happened. It didn't fit. If something doesn't fit into our worldview, we actually can't hold on to it. That's true. I call that hypnosis, you know, and so there's a little bit of that. You see, you see this a little bit with things like UFOs. People, 10 people will see something and they'll see completely different things because it doesn't fit any of their worldviews. And so the, the mind body is trying to find some way to anchor it. But right. pretty clearly, none of them are none of them are it because we're we're disagreeing on yeah. what actually happened. Well, I remember that that's happened to me more than once, where I've like like literally with my eyeballs seen a thing, like, and then the person I'm with goes, they don't they see it, and then five minutes or ten minutes later, they're like, no, I didn't see that, and it's like, okay. <laughs> well, I, I mean, we agreed five minutes ago that we saw it but it's too hard to compute. Yeah. So yeah. you're saying it's a physical skill to be more sensitive. Uh, I think that's really interesting because I think the notion of uh, sensitivity or psychic ability or uh, multi-dimensional perception is often thought of as something that doesn't have to do with your body. Mm -hmm. How would you say it's a physical skill? Well, I, there, every way I know to perceive things involve my body. Am I seeing? Am I hearing? I, my, I pick up psychic information first as amorphous feeling in my gut and in my torso. Yeah. Ah. And so for me, my primary, um, my, my most easily accessed sensitivity is very abstract but very physical. And I had to learn over time to ask the question, what's that like? If I say, what is it for me? This is my mind because of my, I think because of my science training, when I say, what is it? It has to be unimpeachably accurate, right? That's too much pressure. But if I say, what's it like? Then that opens up and it becomes a little story or a picture and is more likely to actually lead me to what it is than asking so get a sensation in your body then? And then you say, what is that like? The first time, um, the first time I consciously understood it, I was on the campus in Madison, Wisconsin. I was going to step into the street and I had a real drop in my gut. And I said, wow, that feels unsafe. Like the street is unsafe. And five seconds later, a car came barreling around the corners, squealing tires and shot through. And I'm, that was that was a big enough message that I went, okay, my my gut knew this. My um, there's a phrase that you um, Jane Roberts in the Seth material used to occasionally say, the cells precognate. So so it's we put a lot of pressure on the mind and the spirit, but what if our bodies also are these radio receivers and transmitters all the time picking up the environment, and that our mind sees time in a certain size slice. But a tree sees time in a 50-year-wide slice, and my gut cells see time as a 10-minute-wide slice. Mm -hmm. And so yes. there's, there's all these different ways to perceive what the current moment is. 
Your cells have precognition. Though to the cells, it's probably the present moment. But to my mind, it's precognition. Because it, because it just caught up. Your mind's slow. It just, it's the last thing to get the picture. Yeah. And sometimes it can't, as we just said, it can't get the picture. I mean, we know this because um, animals, and we, if we, I think that part of that hypnosis is hypnotizing us out of being animals. Mm-hmm. We're forgetting we're animals. <laughs> we're na- we are nature. Mm-hmm. People say we're going out into nature. It's like, you're in, I'm in nature right now. This is nature. I'm right. nature. Right. And so we forget that. And, <clears throat> you know, we know that the, the rest of the animals that haven't gotten into hypnosis, you know, before a tsunami go uphill. Right. But we don't because we've forgotten more animals. We've brainwashed ourselves out of being animals. Mm-hmm. Like I was thinking about those tsunamis, you know, today and how I used to have all these dreams about tsunamis, tsunami dreams, tsunami dreams, tsunami dream. And I'm, I'm like supposed to go up a hill, supposed to go up a hill. And I'm like, what do the tsunami dreams mean? And I gave it all some metaphor, metaphysical, metaphorical uh, storyline. And then the tsunamis happened and I stopped having dreams about tsunamis. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things you taught me. You probably don't remember teaching me this, but it was probably one of your spirit guides, was that a lot of dreams are not about us. Huh? What did I say? It wasn't me. Who was it? it a different way. You said it a different way, but I was describing I was describing an experience of being somebody else on a roof of a factory, getting beaten up, and you said, "Yeah, that happened to somebody. That just was that 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 wasn't actually you, but you you took in part of that experience." Hmm. So that goes to the thing of like the contract of being sensitive, of being mm-hmm. willing to come out of the hypnosis, right, and come back to your come to your senses to come to your senses as opposed to being yeah. dulled, there is a contract that you're saying you got to agree to, which is, are you willing, right? Is that what you yeah. think? Is that what the question is? Yeah. Am I, am I willing to even entertain that, that, um, that there might be consequences of being sensitive that I haven't predicted? And most of us don't especially want to know everybody's emotions. You know, we, we might think we do, but in, in reality, it's, it's um, unnecessary and too much. Yeah, I mean, I do have a practice around that I had to learn because I didn't have, I don't have the thing where I can, I can't actually shut off the sensitivity. So, nor do I want to actually at all. Um, but I have a practice around that uh, empathic center being overwhelmed. Um, but yeah, most people, it's too overwhelming. A lot, of, a lot of empaths just like really hide, physically hide from the world because they can't handle uh, that discomfort. Back mm-hmm. to that topic of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is not exactly what we're talking about now, but we were talking about nature a few minutes ago. And, and it's, I think it's what is the flow you're in. And so being in, I don't know, I grew up in the electronic age, so I was always surrounded by magnetic uh, impulses through copper wires, unless I was out in the fields or out in the woods or out on a mountaintop. And so there's there's that sense of, I was going to say, you know, in nature, we're in the flow. We're in the flow that maybe our ancestral genetic body understands. Right. 
But we've chosen to be in the flow of all these other electromagnetic impulses and all of these, I mean, just imagine all of the energy. We, talk, we think about crystalline energy. Well, you know, a 1,200 foot tall obelisk of concrete full of glass windows, that's running a ton of energy. It is. And saying the energy is negative, I think is, it's just, un, it's just unfamiliar and for some of us uncomfortable. Yeah. So cities are also incredibly powerful, incredibly beautiful. I, I have opinions about how long the moment of beauty of the cities can last, but it's that's irrelevant. My opinion about that is not something that I find relevant. They're very natural. They're as natural as an anthill is, a mm-hmm. city. Uh, they were made by beings who are from the nature. <laughs> right. It's made out of everything that is made is made out of natural objects. All na- all objects on this planet are natural. Yeah. You know, this idea that there's natural and unnatural things. It's just like, what? Mm-hmm. You mean ma- humans interacted with it? So it's unnatural? It's like, no, humans are nature. It's natural. <laughs> it was definitely human made. That's natural. It's natural for humans to make things. I think our defining characteristic is that we're creative. I mean, if there is a defining characteristic, but we're very That's creative. Really interesting point because... Um, one of my hobbies is I do listen to a lot of archaeology and a lot of uh, ancestral genetics, and, and 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 there appears to have been a shift point. It's hard to know, but it, our, but our our technology stayed very similar for maybe forty thousand years, and then it began changing slowly, and a little quicker, and a little quicker, and a little quicker, and it just seems to get ever faster. There seems to be like a fiery energy that we've evoked uh, as humans that we're in a really fiery phase, like this idea that we have a lot of electromagnetic energy around us. Like just sitting here, we're talking electronically. There's a lot of wires. There's a lot of electricity. There's a lot of, um, you know, light and the energy, the, the energy of the fiery age where things are really rapid Maybe that's not the definition of being human because there's no other animal that I can think of that's, that creates fire. Yeah. Physical fire. I do know of animals that will interact with fire once it happens um, in a very, mostly in a passive way. Um, but one, I, it's a little hard to tell from the archaeology, but it looks like as long as there have been human-like people, they've been using fire. It's so interesting because we were even taking like water and wind and um, gases and transforming them into fire. And yeah. it all started with us, the, you know, figuring out how to have a fire mm-hmm. for, to cook because that was a big change. When we started cooking our food, mm-hmm. our whole face changed and our whole cranium changed because we didn't have to chew so hard anymore. And that gave room for the brain. And so like to take it from there, from those ancestors to now where I'm sitting here (laughs) and fire is everywhere and it's so safe and so contained. Yeah. And this, the subtle fire of electricity compared to the, to the plasma fire of a burning log. It's um, yeah, there's, I, I do think, um, I'm sometimes confused by our limitations. Looking at, for instance, our psychic sensitivity and the way in which 
consciousness can be can move in and out of levels of time. Physics would predict that there are forces or particles to mediate those experiences, but none of the ones that currently exist describe how that could happen. So physics, well, physics would predict that it could mediate what experiences? What specific experiences? The experiences, the experience, so when I was talking about that described um, various layers of expansion of time or, or, or very focused, narrow slices of time, mm-hmm. that experience, um, consciousness itself, physics is terrible at talking about, like, how does consciousness exist? Yeah. Physics basically is still stuck with Descartes. Oh, like, dear. We just think we're conscious. We're just matter having an experience. And, right. <laughs> and it just looks like we're conscious. But I, love the, I just love the story about Descartes because of him getting this whole theory that he came up with was brought to him by a spirit in his dreams. An angel came to him in his dreams and said, think this way about it. And then he took off with it from a spirit message. <laughs> like, okay. When... <laughs> I don't know a ton about him, but I had read years and years ago that he was considered a pretty powerful mystical teacher. Yeah. By students. I and mean, there must have been something useful about us thinking differently. And probably we got less, less, uh, suspi- what's the word? Not suspicious, but what's the word when you put magic and paranoia together? Superstitious. Superstitious. We became less superstitious and we were able to think differently after him. Although we all, we're all down on him now, but it might've been helpful for us to think differently. Um, it may have been a bit of an antidote to religion. An antidote and, a, and an opening to another way of exploring mystery, which is science. Yeah. But, you know, like all things we do as humans, we got, we went, we went, we always go a little too far. <laughs> it's like, right. No, no, and the I- earth is still alive. It's okay. The earth is still alive. Yeah. It lasted a long time because even my parents' generation, my parents were both born in 1915, they were very, very clear in saying animals aren't, animals aren't conscious. They just appear to be conscious. They're not, they don't really understand anything. And I think, it was a, um, I think it was a way to not feel guilty about animals were treated. Oh, right. I think it, it was just an ex, kind of an excuse. It's a way of dulling your empathy for them. Yeah. And and that's one of the things that I think Descartes overtly said, that animals were mechanisms. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying that as if I know, but I'm like, sounds like he'd say that. I'm pretty sure that came directly from him, not from one of his students. Um, I could be wrong about that, too. I'm not. How did that go over for you when you were, as a child, I'm assuming you were very, very sensitive to plants? Mm-hmm. Um, and knew that they, they had consciousness. Yeah. Um, with plants, it's plants um, appear to be passive. And yet the engine of metabolism in plants are always making new things from sunlight and air and a little bit of water. And so if you think about how powerful and miraculous that is, um, they're, they're just making new stuff all the time. And so I think as a child, that's what I was sensing, that, that miraculous ex, exp, uh, expansion into existence. Animals do something similar. It's just not as obvious because we're running around doing it. So it, it's, we're, we're acquiring things actively rather than, rather than passive, passively. There's nothing passive about a plant, actually. Yeah. Rather, rather than just sucking up some water and some minerals and, and 
turning the alchemy of, of sunlight. Talk about fire. You know, there is the catching the fire from the sunlight that we later as humans will release in a physical fire. Um, so, so we are very much partners to, to the plants. I was very much drawn to the, um, the sensual innocence of animals, the presence of animals, the uh, sort of the comparant, I would say apparent compassionate honesty of animals. Um, and so when I, if, when I was very young, I would have been more likely to want to be a zookeeper or a naturalist than a botanist oh. or a naturalist. But, I, but because of sort of the, the details of how I grew up, it was easier to interact with plants than to interact with animals. Here's a great way to support me in my efforts. You can go to patreon.com forward slash ask pomegranate. That's all one word. If you want to get behind all the work I'm doing, it would be really helpful. Now I want to ask you, Larry, what what's going on with you spiritually? What's fascinating to you these days? Mm-hmm. Through a series of sort of unpredictable synchronicities, I've ended up studying the tonal system of uh, Indian sacred music or Indian devotional music, the kirtans, the bijans, not full-on raga singing, but learning the, the tonal systems in the ragas a little bit. And it came about because I was, you know, I just went through my second Saturn return. And at the end of your second Saturn return, you always get a, like a new job, like a directive of a thing to do next. And I was very clearly told um, to start working the Kundalini energy in my body. The way they said it was turn the lights on. And I remember turn the lights on, turn the lights, turn the lights on. It's time to turn the lights on. And I've, I've dabbled in that. And I, but it's um, that exact electrical system of the body. I haven't really worked with. And I was remembering a friend who used to um, transform her awareness with chanting, simple, simple chants. And so I did a couple of those and, and got this beautiful, pretty quickly, within a, couple, a few days, really big um, alteration in state. Um, and, and it gently built to sort of a bliss-like state. I hadn't had bliss like that since being a hormonal teenager. And, and then within a week, it went the other way and the roller coaster went down the slope and I, and I had random anger. And so there was that there was then a, a, a month or so of, okay, I've stirred this up now. Now it's not settling. I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to, if I, and it would keep me awake at night sometimes. And I began getting a little depressed. And so mm. it went from being super positive to kind of not so great. And if I did the chanting, then I would sleep well that night. I would feel better right then. But then almost like running, like having a cup of coffee, then it would run out and and it would be gone and I would feel worse. Oh. And so I did a little research because we were still, that was back in February. We were still full on in COVID lockdown and knocking on wood. Hopefully those won't come back in that way. Mm -hmm. At this point, we're in sort of a intermediate stage at, at this moment. And so I began looking at teachers that, that were well thought of who did Kundalini trainings online. And none of them quite felt right. Again, the wisdom of the body. In this case, I mostly, um, most sort of forward looking psychic reading kind of information would come from my gut. But this right. was from my heart. 
So and, can I pause you here? I got two questions for, for you. What does it feel like when you get that psychic reading that is an affirmation in your body? What does that feel like to you? So, so the simplest way would be to say, what is a yes? Yeah. What's a yes? So there's a, um, I perceive a sort of between the, you can't really see where I'm going. So right between these two parts of my body, there's a column of sensation. Mm-hmm. And when it's a yes, it's more subtle than a no. A yes, everything is in a, is lined up. Everything's lined up and grounded. And there's a little, maybe a feeling of I can move forward. You know, that's the thing. The no is, the no is more subtle. And that's why you have to pay. I teach paying attention to the, maybe and you pay attention to the maybe and say and the maybe is no until further notice so then you don't have to be confused (laughs) right yeah it's it's harder for me to distinguish a maybe from a yes but i'm pretty solid on no's that's why you can that's why you can go with the maybe the maybe is like it just means no right now it doesn't mean no forever just means no right now right so then you don't have to go oh god it's a maybe i don't know and then you're confused Uh uh-huh and so, and so where, where, where a clear no is for me is, is low. Low. And it's almost like nausea, that like slight stomach dropping feeling. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it can be subtle. I have to look for it. Uh, sometimes I have to look for it. Sometimes I don't. Um, and those are the primary ones. But, you know, I could ask for the sensation to be between my shoulder blades or in my fingertips or there's... I can, I can ask for my body to express it in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. If you're getting this, if you're getting, this is me now talking to the listeners. If you're getting a, a sensation from your spirit guides that you don't like, you just tell them, stop it. Like my, my friend used to get a side poke. Our friend, a star used to get a side poke and they used to poke her in the side, poke her in the side. And she's like, I'm like, just tell them to stop it and give you something else. And so they, she asked and they did. And it was like, oh, I can do that. Yeah, you can, you're in charge. It's your body. You're in charge. So another question I have for you then, if you would, before we go on to the process of what you went through, is if you could describe what Kundalini is for those who don't know what it, what Kundalini is. You know, I... Um, in your I'm experience. A scholar of Kundalini. Yeah. But there is... The body at some point in our lives wants to turn on this current of energy that rushes up from the base of our spine towards the crown. I think it might literally be the energy that we that we anchor into the earth with towards towards the gate that we open into the sky with. And and then what happens with it? And and so it's it's interesting. I don't fully understand the distinction because I can I can run that energy from the earth to the sky like nobody's business, but that's not sensationally or or in terms of consciousness effect the same as those particular channels along the spine um, opening up in a particular way. And their channels, they're kind of a, the DNA's interlocking spirals, right? Aren't they? Uh, you know, there's there's argument about how much of that is more metaphorical and how much of that is literal, but people often typically perceive them as starting at the base of the spine and then and then sort of going around each, well, either around or intersecting at each chakra. So yeah, and then there's like a theory that to me that reminds me of the caducus, which is the 
the two snakes twining around the the tree the in greek mythology this comes up with the god teresius or i guess he's not a god the person who goes from being a woman to a man and back to a man a woman a third gendered person again and mercury and iris um yeah and all- as we know larry and i know uh what what's that god we work with oh my god he's brain Gishida. my brain nin huh? sita everybody if you're interested look up nin sita lord lady good tree is that the name? I think, that, I think that's the closest translation we've found. And it's a it's a gender uh, complex god. So it's a god of all gender. From Mesopotamia, who's shown as, if I remember right, two snakes going around a, um, a column. A column or a tree and or a man and a woman holding a holding two. And there's two, a man, woman, and there's two dragons. Sometimes they're dragons, sometimes they're snakes. That's right. And uh, yeah, there's some, some people who think that's been translated into the Caducus, which is, um, yeah. It's possible there's enough time gap that I think they would have, that the transference must have been on the spirit world, not in the physical direct lineage. Because there's, there's I think well more than a thousand years in between those two expressions between Mesopotamia and, um, and classic Greece, classic yeah. Greece. Mm-hmm. There were images and there's oral history. It was a long time. Possible. It's, it's, Who knows? That we don't know. Possible. Either thing is possible. We could go back and find out trance into it. <laughs> yes. And, but, yeah. um, in any case, um, so the Kundalini rise in, in, in Kundalini is a word that is Hindu. I assume so. I assume, um, it's it, whether whether it's Sanskrit. I would guess it's probably Sanskrit. Sanskrit. But it's, it's from the land of India. Sanskrit is the the most arguably the most ancient um, existing language in India, and it's it's a religious language like um, Latin is a religious language for the Catholics, and they have a very rigorous system of training the people who are going to speak it. Um, and there's certain there's lots of words because it's a very very spiritual and religious country. There's lots of words that that are in their common lang- common parlance from the, the ancient language that is about religion. Right. So, so Kundalini is one of them, um, and it it's separate. I think from spiritual enlightenment. I think that that's a different thing. I think one is a physical transformation and one is a transformation of the, okay, this is one of those things where I have to say it to, and, and we'll see how close I get. Um, the, the, the spiritual enlightenment, I think, is a transformation of the clinging of the ego into a release. So, hey, wait, wait, wait. We have to take that again. Say it one more time for me. That, that spiritual enlightenment, as distinct from a kundalini awakening, okay. is a transformation of the ego from clinging to release. So if, you're, if you experience the spiritual enlightenment, you're no longer, um, you're no longer clinging to identifying yourself as any one particular thing. Um, you know, my my very favorite teacher on these topics is Adyashanti out of California. And he'll say things like, 
you have to free everyone to make their own decision. And we can do that begrudgingly, but then we haven't freed them in our heart, in our hearts and souls and minds. You know, we have to, we have to really literally free everyone to be the, to be fully themselves and they make their own decision. And, and that sounds separate from the ego release. But if I'm, if I'm releasing everybody else to actually do their own thing, um, that requires a huge amount of trust. So it's a place of acceptance where you're accepting and having no expectations of anybody in particular and yeah. allowing that, allowing everybody to show up as they show up in the moment. And that includes more than just humans, but also like for me, that would be include everything. So in the yeah. morning, this is the way I do it. I think of it. In the morning, my spirit guides recently taught this to me through the pandemic that I wake up and I'm like, they're like, say hello to your life because you've manifested this now and it all, and this is what's shown up for you. Mm-hmm. And if you have memories of some other version of reality, that's interesting, but not relevant. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when I wake up in the morning, I do a process where I, I greet my body. I go, hello, body. Okay, rock and roll, made it through uh, and re-manifested the world. And what has shown up rather than what have I lost? Because that's memory and that's the past and that's not real. But what's shown up in this moment? So every morning I greet my, the paintings on my wall. I'm a painter and I have paintings on my wall, as you see on paintings. And I greet the fabrics and I'm like, oh, that fabric came today. Oh, oh, and I look over and I see my spouse and I'm like, oh, my spouse is here today. So mm-hmm. I greet the day anew. This is the way I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind it, of a first Groundhog Day. Yeah, it's like literally Groundhog Day. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, was- Groundhog Day is Bridget's Day. And I think that is one of the, Harold Ramis is one of the best spiritual teachers in filmmaking. And it's, it's Bridget's Day. It's, it's uh, calm to camel mask Groundhog's Day. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a Bridget teaching and teaching from the goddess, Irish goddess Bridget, who's my goddess. So I, what am I, I'm passionate about that movie as a result, because I think he really captured the notion. By the way, they think that he was alive for about a thousand years in that movie. They calculated it. That's a it long took time. Him about a thousand years to do that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he couldn't go for flapjacks on the, on the 900th day. Anyway, yeah. back to you. So, back to so Kundalini. Do you have any uh, practice on the other end of the night where you where you're going to bed, going to sleep? Yeah, I've started this practice. My spirit guides have taught me this practice of letting everything dissolve and all attachments dissolve so that my relationship to everything, especially things I think I hold, I remanifest from the past that I don't, you know, like I remanifest the house I grew up in every day I was doing that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I haven't been there in years and I, I went, oh, just let that dissolve. Let that go away. I don't have to remanifest that, especially since there was so much trauma that experience, I experienced in that house. Mm-hmm. I, also good things, but trauma. And so it's just like this, let it all dissolve and let it go and allow it to go into the earth or go into the sky and allow the new thing. Now you go on your journey in between. You're going on your journey, spiritual journey of dreaming and resting and restoring the body. And then when you awaken, you will remanifest and what is present is present. And you might have some discomfort about that, what is present, like that things have gone and you remember them, but they're gone. You might have some discomfort, but that's not, that's not really important. What's important is what has presented itself now. And that's a way of staying in the present moment 
and not, you know, what's that joke we always have? What's that song about non-attachment we always have, Larry? What, what's something but a lesson in it? Oh, um, we have a little joke about this. It's, it's from it's from the Lord Yama. Lord uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We probably won't remember what it. To do with it, got to do with it. What is death but a lesson in impermanence? Not <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, like they say, they you know they say orgasms are little deaths, but really, sleeping is a is a big death. It's like a, a death. Everything dies that moment, and from that moment, you come back and you remanifest. So that's the way I do it. That's, that's the way I can interpret what you're saying as enlightenment, uh, as a spiritual enlightenment is to pra- a way to practice it. It's just to not let yourself worry about how everybody's going to be or how anything is going to be and yeah. just be in the present moment. And um, I'm still at the stage where I think my life has gotten much more um, comfortable and much more interesting but I'm not at the stage of, of awakening and enlightenment. And what people usually report is that when you have the full release and nothing matters, there's six months of lack of course, and then you end up doing things for people. You, you know, you, you begin spontaneously in the world where nothing matters in the way you thought it mattered, still choosing to do things for people. That's, so then- so now I'm really con- I'm really curious about the fact that your aura has gotten quite quite large around you and quite white. Mm. If I'm just seeing it now, looking at you through the computer screen, or if it's being recorded, I'm really curious about that. I'll find that out later. But um, your aura got quite large and white around you, and a lot of edgy. Well, I was edges. I was trying to imagine what I've been told about awakening and enlightenment. Yeah, well, you were experiencing it in a way. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I have a goal of getting there, but um, you never know. I'll follow the energy and see what happens. Um, Now that we're differentiating that from Kundalini rising. So that's in spiritual enlightenment. That's one one description of it. And differentiating that to Kundalini. Kundalini rising is something else you're saying. I'm not. Yes. I, um, yes, I am saying that. And, I'm not by any means an expert on on either of those topics, but I understand a little more about psychological awakening, which also has physical consequences on the body. Um, one of the th- one of the ones that Pam and I talk about sometimes is lack of sleep. But part of lack of sleep from when you're doing spiritual practice is that most of the energy we replenish from with sleep is energy used rejecting the truth of the world (laughs) so so if we actually surrender rejecting the world we don't need as much sleep we tend not to sleep as much so there's there which is not an excuse to like stay too busy to sleep that's a whole different whole different issue there's a i've talked to palm about this before but a lot of of significant uh, spiritual teachers at some point in their lives start sleeping four hours a night, but then they're meditating five hours a night. You know, they're not, they're not then working half the night or playing half the night and, and then sleeping half the night. They're, they're, they're still letting their brain rest. Mm -hmm. um, Even if they're ostensibly awake, more or less awake. Um, But the thing about, about setting intention at night, I've, I've, I don't do it real often, but it's, it's a really good place for me if I can't make a decision 
And so with the Kundalini practices that I was seeing available for classes, I, um, I knew that I'd been dawdling and thinking about it, and I knew that it was approximately the time when the classes would close. And so when I went to bed one night, I said, I need to know in the morning what I'm going to do. And when I woke up in the morning, there was an email in my uh, email box from a group I'd never heard of <laughs> offering a free class on devotional singing to Shiva. And Shiva's one of my favorite gods. And Shiva, and it's the chanting to Shiva that tends to wake up the Kundalini, arguably. But it's it, for me, that was a big one. Um, and so I thought, there's the answer. I'll follow this up. And so there was a free class, and it was beautiful and evocative, and I felt it in my body. And then that led to the opportunity to sign up for other online live classes in in this Indian tonal, all, what do we even call it? It's there. I've never been musical in my life. I, and I sort of witness that Western musicians can have a mystical relationship to music and to notes. But in India, it's a system, you know. And so this set of notes used in certain relationships can pull rain. This set of notes used in certain relationships is evocative of the evening. But if you do it in the morning, it's going to bring you the relaxation of the evening. So you want to, you want to not fight the energy that you're calling in. You know, it's, um, they call it the, the I think, I think it's called the, the rasa, the, the, the innate quality of the notes and the relationships between the notes. So it's, uh, for me, it's been an antidepressant. It's, it's been a very, very gentle way to wake up the Kundalini energies, but pretty softly. Mm. Uh, it's been um, fascinating. And it also takes me, um, particularly when I'm, when I'm doing the live practices and following the note systems, they'll just, one of the teachers will just start singing groups of notes, and then we try and follow along. And, and that will move me out of all verbal thinking into a physical and mental openness. So, so it's, it's a transitional phase. I, I've been at it about three and a half or four months. Yeah, about, about three and a half months, I think. And, um, but I'm excited about it. And I'm very interested in the idea, because it's, it's an Indian idea that all things are sound. And so I talk about all things are relationship. Well, from another perspective, what's in relationship? Not matter, but vibration. Um, I mean, that's part of the, the feeling of being in an animal body is that it's a hologram because, or it's a dream, as other people say, because what it is, is it's this vibrational energy or this sound that's coalesced temporarily. Mm -hmm. And um, when you die, you find out, oh, I was in that, that particular vibration that allowed me to have those sensations. And now I'm having, you know, it's just like walking through a door. You just yeah. leave your body, you like you walk through a door and you're like, then you perceive your way. You cannot long, no longer not be sensitive. Like in a way, the animal body allow, or the, the density of this plane allows you to experiment with insensitivity, <laughs> you know, which is, can be very, very uncomfortable, like to the point of acute pain, 
which is what I think depression is. I think depression might be described as the acute pain of not feeling connected. Uh-huh. Um, and that's why I think people go, okay, I'm going to kill myself because they're like, I, I think in, intuitively they know they can get reconnected if they kill themselves. Um, but I would also recommend that you just wait because um, if you can, because everything passes, everything changes. So whatever acute pain or discomfort you're in will change. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that from my life experience. <laughs> Especially if it's all new every morning. It's new every morning. <laughs> yeah. Five, two, zero. Two, 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 ninety-nine, twenty-two. 9922 You can ask pomegranate You can ask pomegranate She's a priestess I think it's really cool that you are even though you've been doing this for 30 years that you're still in student mode you're learning the curtain you're learning to use that what's that box the harmonium harmonium yeah mm-hmm. and you're doing all this new chanting and learning all about these uh different techniques uh and have teachers do you want to tell people what teachers you're studying with i do they're spectacular they're really great great people so there's a group uh, a couple out of boulder i think it's boulder colorado and they they have what they call the sacred sound lab so i'm sure just googling that would get you there sacred sound lab yes um, and it's Sheila who grew, who's grown up her, her, um, she's grown up in North America, but she is of Indian descent and her mother is a, a teacher in, um, spiritual traditions and taught Bijans and Kirtans through her whole life. So she's grown up in music and has made music her, as far as I can tell her whole identity for probably at least 20 years and her partner, Brent, who's, Last name I'm forgetting. He has a, a more classical, I think, a um, more Western way he entered these things. But he he's um, the one who's the yoga teacher and d- tends to do the lectures about the spiritual consequences and details and opportunities. And Sheila tends to demonstrate the music in a really beautiful, beautiful way. Cool. All right. Sacred Sound. Sacred Sound Lab. And I think if you go to their website, there will be multiple classes that you could ask to have sent to you. Um, I think there's one about peace mantras and the one that I talked about, about the uh, chanting to Shiva. I think there's a third one that are complimentary so you can get a flavor of what they do. Neat. Okay, cool. Um, So uh, there's some kind of spirit in somebody's machine that's clicking away at us, we might have to psychically find out who's clicking at us. We don't have any explanation for it, but there you go. Um, We'll just move, we'll just press on. Um, So the other question I have for you, Larry, is, so let's say you're, you're, you're like, okay, yeah, actually, I'm sensitive, and I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna accept that, and I'm gonna move towards learning some skills for that or I'm going to accept it and go towards it as opposed to numbing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, what got any recommend, got any tips, got any recommendations, exercises, thoughts about 
how to navigate that? Well, as you know, there's there's bunches and you might pick a different thing. Somebody would pick a different thing who's already being overwhelmed than somebody who's feeling like they can't get started. Oh, yeah. Two different things. Really different places where people enter. Um, In both cases, now we just talked about the process of setting an intention as you go to sleep. And I think, and in my case, usually setting the intention involves when I wake up, this thing I can't understand that I don't know what to do about, I want to know enough to take the next action when I wake up. And so that could be any number of of ways to do it, but it could also be, okay, I'm going to sleep and I want to come into greater sensitivity in a good way, in in a way that that is beneficial to me and those around me. Um, Or in a way that's entertaining, or I mean, you pick pick the quality that you're evoking. Um, It is true that doing... doing, um, Psychic work only for entertainment is about as safe as doing psychedelics only for entertainment. That's uh, <laughs> it can be a little risky um, because it, it tends both of those things will will push us past ordinary boundaries of what we think our minds can do. Um, another one. This is this this is not what most people would think of, but making a physical offering gives spirit material with which to act. So the classic place to do it is to make a small altar in your kitchen. Maybe you light a little candle while you're cooking. Maybe you pour a cup of tea or a cup of cognac or a little, maybe there's a picture. So maybe it's a picture of an ancestor or maybe it's a picture of a deity or a favorite tree, but you're, you're evoking the quality of, of, of a honored connection and then you're giving it usually it's a food but candles are powerful there's a reason people do candle burning so there's um and when i was first trying to get started i did all the things i did the candles i did the incense i did the food i did the fragrance Um, and any one of those things gently offered and, and maybe you'll have an immediate sensation in your body or maybe it'll take a while before before the energy comes back to you. But it's it's um, almost like gravity. Like you send that intention out, you take the physical action that helps amplify it, and then you let it go, and then it will come back to you, and you'll and you'll notice it. And if one of the ways it can come back is pure like intuitive or psychic perception another way it can come back is to feel that rub where where my hypnosis that keeps me less sensitive is rubbing against the sensations trying to arise and so and so it can either be blissful or it can be uncomfortable but uncomfortable messages are only uncomfortable until they're sorted out right and and then they're also a blessing how do you sort out a message what's your technique you know, I do the same. It's the, just the same as when I talk about reading my gut. You know, it's like, okay, what am I perceiving? And now what's, what's it like? What's, um, maybe, maybe my mind can't tell me exactly what it is, but let's, 
let's head in the direction of what it is. What, what does it seem like? Mm-hmm. And in my case, the big transition for me was, um, I'm trying to remember how old I was. I was about 30 when I realized I was really, really attempting to always control the sensations of my heart. Ah. And that if I let that go, um, to have greater experience, to have a broader experience of both love and psychic phenomenon, I had to let that go. I had to trust that my heart would be okay and that I didn't need to control my experience all the time. And when I actually got it and it happened, I remember laying on the couch just like with a sensation, not, not a horror, not a burning sensation, but just a sensation of fire, 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 fire for like an afternoon. And, and that a whole bunch of things were possible after that that weren't possible before that. But I had to per- first perceive it was physical. It was also postural. Okay. I protect my chest. I pull my shoulders forward. And, and so that was, that was mine. It's a common one in our culture. Yeah. You know, if I'm, if I'm open hearted, we see that as like jolly and good, but also like really risky. Yeah. And I would say that probably it's riskier to not be open hearted. It is more risky. I mean, that, that moving forward from the prow, the prow of your, your bone, what is this bone called? Sternum. Sternum, especially for people who have uh, female bodies, or I'm sorry, for people who have um, breasts uh, and are perceived as female, when you move forward from your breasts and you hold them forward, you have gotten quite assaulted for that i mean you have to be careful when you have breasts because i mean all of us are are prone to uh attacks predatory behavior but um because you human the human animal is predatory like this is a reality we have a hard time accepting so we tend to go like this to um not have that happen Mm -hmm. so um that then diminishes but if you can open it up and find that strength, it doesn't change the amount of predatory behavior you have. Same, exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But we think we can move through it in a way that's not, that is more controlling of it. You have more power if your sternum is forward, mm. which is interesting. Another thing you can do when you're having that discomfort that we're talking about a lot today, we're talking a lot about discomfort and tolerating discomfort. And the one major, one of the major tools of that is the air. The air is the tool of calming the body. And we do that by breathing. And our we are and when we're like this, we can't breathe. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting at tables, we can't breathe. So that kind of opening up and then also allowing yourself to breathe. And you can do the this is a tip for everybody of the four, four, four count for four in seven hold, eight out breath. Do that three or four times. It's very calming to the body and helps mediate that discomfort. And everybody, if you haven't already found the um, vagus nerve calming breath in my classes section on the website, go to that and I'll teach you a breath that is going to calm the vagal nerve and helps that um, that whole body calm down and so that you aren't as in just because the discovery is kind of boring and it allows your body to calm to the point where you can um, 
not have that discomfort. You do the breath, learn the breath, do it often. And within an hour after you do it, you'll find yourself not as uncomfortable. It's amazing. So that's a little aside. Um, so if you're gonna be sensitive, you have to learn to calm, breathing is good. Being tolerable of your discomfort is good. Um, I also find that if you just let yourself, uh, I think that what you're saying about making that connection by having a small altar is so good. When you're being more sensitive, I also personally recommend that you either find a specific being that is bigger than you, anything that's bigger than you, and that you feel like you could turn your life over to, a little bit of it or your, your care over to, like a mm. large tree or the planet Earth, which is bigger than you. If for my case, I like gods and goddesses, other people like, you know, don't pick another human because they're not any bigger than you. And like something that has an energy field that you can relax into. Mm -hmm. who, who are you working with now with in the God sphere? The goddess sphere or the God sphere? Yeah, well, because I'm doing all this kirtan singing, I'm, I'm working with Shiva and Durga. And my, my long-term main squeeze is, is uh, Kirnunos. So he's your boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, yeah. And, and then within, I, I tend to favor the, the Hindu way of seeing aspects of many, many different manifestations of the same mysterious being. And so the Kernunos I pull in is going to be, look different than the Kernunos somebody else pulls in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because you have a personal relationship with Kernunos. Yes, I do. I do. But but there's a way in which um, deity is bigger than we can perceive. We we each are bigger than the other can perceive. That's true yes. of humans, too. Yes. And so the amount of somebody that I can perceive correlates to how much of them I can let in. And so with deity, we really can focus like okay, the portal in my heart that I'm opening to deity, I'm going to aim it here. And I'm going to ask for it to manifest in this way. And, or, I mean, it happens anyway. It happens. One of the things that I think is useful to remember is if we're making this choice, then choose spirit guides and deities that we want. Yes. Rather than, so patterns that we're familiar with, that we think we have to have, we don't have to have here. You know, so so a judgmental, aggressive God, maybe not. Maybe we were raised by judgmental, offensive humans, but that doesn't that's no excuse to to make our our God patterning follow that. We we have to interrupt it because the ha the habit is to recreate the authority we've already experienced. Right. I mean, I think if you're going to bother, the reason I think gods and goddesses and um, queer gods are handy is because A, it's not so new that you can't relate to it. You can relate to it. Mm -hmm. uh, B, it's really ancestral. Like, so the long-term humans have been doing this for a long time. So we understand it. They have, we have, they, they can form, be like us. Like I mean, Ningish Sita is a tree, two dragons, and a trans uh, multi-gendered being. But I can still relate to that because I know what a dragon is, a tree, and is what a what a um, gender fluid person is. So I can relate. <laughs> I can still relate. And I think the other thing is um, it it's a way of spirit to formulate itself into a story that you can relate to, mm -hmm. and it should be 
fun. The whole freaking point of having it, having a relationship to higher power in God form is that you have fun. You like them, they like you. Uh-huh. They pick a god, pick a god, a goddess or a queer spirit, queer god that likes you and that you like. <laughs> yes, does that mean that they're not going to challenge you? No, but it I mean it does mean like like the rules for me are don't pick a God that's wrathful and mean and doesn't like humans and is always putting them down. Like, yes. Okay, fine. There's those gods uh, that we manifested, but who I'm not, I have no interest in them. So for me, it's Bridget, which is also known as Kuan Yin. You can find the same goddesses all over. There's a Terra, I Terra goddess in every, pretty much every country. Um, which is the earth in Ireland and, you know, it's all over in India. They have a lot of terrors in Hindu. So just get yourself or invent one. And cause somebody, somebody told this story about this God and gave them, allowed that energy to form. So you can do whatever you want. And having something bigger than you when you're going into sensitivity work is a really good basis. Or if you can't do that, then I would go towards asking an ancestor that loves you beyond all reason or a spirit guide. This is me. It sounds like I'm lecturing you, Larry, you know, all this, but it's again, telling the people a spirit guide, a guide, you have lots of different kinds of spirits that help you. You can have a guide, a guardian, a secretary, a challenger. I would go with a guide or a guardian to start with because they are going to protect you and protect, protect your sensitivities. And they can help filter. That's what a secretary, spirit guide, spirit guide's secretary does. They filter the information for you. So that's just my little tips on that. Mm-hmm. But the idea of an altar is very good. Yeah, and I think that a sort of a parallel idea, but different, is how we treat ourselves and by how our, our actual physical person. And so. If if you if you've got something that you keep doing that you think is bad for you, you don't have to stop. But if you don't stop and you're wanting to do psychic work, you have to forgive yourself, so that you're not incurring negative mental energy every time you experience it again. And and so and that's really treating. So the altar in the kitchen is hearth and home, but then the treatment of the body. Um, mental or physical is dedicating yourself, acknowledging that you're a sacred being with sacred powers and you're choosing to start to use them and treat yourself well. Doesn't mean you have to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. I have all sorts of habits and all sorts of ways of, of being in the world. But but there is a, um, a balance of... Hmm, I guess I'll say thinking well. And so one of the ways it was described to me is our bodies, we are not our bodies completely. And I, this is my experience of myself and others that when, when my cells are precognating and, ha- and trying to let me know information, that's somebody else getting me information. Yes, I can move my body and yes, I experience my body and yes, my body is me. And yet I'm always interpreting these signals because they're not me. And so rather than saying, oh, my God, this poor, broken body that is clumsy and stupid, I need to say, what an amazing, miraculous body. Thank you so much. Because the body is skilled 
and is smart and is sensitive like a three-year-old. And so when you start saying you're a dumb, stupid body, Mm. I don't like you, I wish you were different, the body will stop cooperating. Yeah, I mean, we do that. We're enculturated to do that, to hate our bodies. And also, especially as we age, this this thing that we're supposed to, like, because you and I are are, uh, middle-aged now, and it's like, and we've known each other for since we were young. It's like this idea that you're supposed to dislike the aging process. It's mm-hmm. so strange and so self-condemning. It's mm-hmm. like, thank you, body. Look at your your skin's getting loose and everything's sagging. It's so beautiful. I think aging is such a beautiful experience. And um, I think it's just because I'm not trying to be perfect. I've learned the lesson of not trying to be perfect. And um I think it's really important that you're, that, that if you can learn, if you can be kind to yourself, learn to be kind to yourself and, and supportive in your self-talk, like Mm -hmm. talk to yourself, like you are a three-year-old and talk about others. Like they're three, like the mistake that three-year-olds make where we're forgiving of. Uh And we, that, allows us to not be perfectionistic which is as we know a a, a, an enculturation of white supremacy and oppressive and beyond that an enculturation of oppressive cultures perfectionism is a condemning um mistake well that's okay sometimes we make that mistake too (laughs) but if we can come to a place of softness around thinking about others and what they're up to and what their mistakes are from the point of view of their three and they're trying to learn something. And then we can also do that to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, it's okay. It's okay to, to love yourself. It's actually okay to love yourself and to be kind. And I think that's really such an important lesson in, in being sensitive. Mm-hmm. Five two zero two 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 ninety nine twenty two ninety nine twenty two. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. So you and I, we work together. Uh, we do spiritual work together. Uh, and one of the things that we're working with, and I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about this, is this, because you're a master manifester. I've seen you manifest a lot of things. <laughs> you, you dream it up and, it, and then you do a certain thing and then it comes true. We've been working with this idea of um, manifesting or impulse coming into fruition, coming into I don't, I can't remember exactly what we came up with, but it was like some kind of like manifesting or making an unmaking pattern that goes on the infinity sign. This is kind of a bit, a bit esoteric, but I want to talk a little bit about the process of manifesting. Uh, and then I want to talk about the other end of it a little bit too, because we, we, we forget to unmanifest. Mm-hmm. This is what I think is most really interesting. But when you're manifesting, when you're using your powers to transform the hologram that you're living into, into one that you would prefer, what's that like for you? What do you do? 
The most important part, and this is similar to other things I talked about, is feeling in and finding the parts of myself that are hesitant to experience the thing I'm trying to have. So, so then I have to extract an agreement from the various parts of myself that I'm willing to experience the consequences of having the thing I want. I'm willing, I'm going to slow you down because that's powerful. I'm willing to experience the consequences of having the thing I want. This is, this is very opposite of the Western mindset. Mm-hmm. Because the Western mindset is one of, and they lived happily ever after. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is the opposite of what you're saying. I'm willing to experience the consequences of having the thing I want. If I go back to when I did the work about, about opening uh, my blocked heart, that was, um, I was excited, but every rational mind knows it's terrifying. And so really absolutely was, I'm probably going to get myself into incredibly crazy situations or difficult situations or pain. And, but I still have to do it. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so, so that was like the first example I can think of, of that technique. It's never, it's never been quite at that same level of, of personal emotional risk other than that. Yeah. But did you get yourself into pain? Did that happen? Oh God. Yes. And most, mostly about difficult relationships because I was, why weren't relationships really working or happening? Well, then they happened, you know, (laughs) and then the roller coaster happened. Um, because I was a 30 year old who didn't have a lot of emotional experience because I hadn't let myself have it. Oh, so what about when you manifested objects or like things? Cause I've seen you manifest like houses and stuff like that. What about when you manifest? Cause a lot of people think of manifesting and they go, I want a car or I want money. That's the worst one. Uh, when people want money. <laughs> I've, I've literally conjured money, but what I, what interests me the most is that most of the time it doesn't work. And so, so yes, it works enough where I go, yeah, that completely, like I sat down and I meditated on money and the, the next day got the check for $650 that was not expected. Yeah. In the, um, and then people that that's intellectually interesting because I'm manifesting the thing that physically is already coming. You know, if we look at time in a normal linear way, the object is already coming my way when I'm saying, damn it, I need that. <laughs> so that again is saying that part of part of the reason so much of this can look supernatural to us is our slice of cause and effect in time is insufficient. So we well, also to- people want money because they want something else and like just go right to the thing you want and don't skip over money. Money, because money doesn't have to be the mediator for things you want. Yeah, um, money is a project. You know, it's a it's a subtle it's a it's a subtle and difficult to describe. I don't know that even intellectually I understand how I move my sensations of not having to my sensations of having, mm-hmm. because that's what I'm doing first. I'm moving myself from a place of not having to the sensations of having. But if I were to pick a metaphor in the world, it's a little like, oh, 
there's the air, there's the sky, there's some breeze, and now over the next few hours it becomes a storm. You know, all the stuff is there. Um, yeah. And and yet it becomes this other entity. It, it it, it's other back to that thing you said earlier of giving the space for the sticky bits to unstick and rearrange themselves. Yeah. You said that in the beginning, that's kind of manifesting. And and I would say that when we're manifesting, it's like you can really allow yourself to know that what you're manifesting is actually obligation. So anytime you want something, and this is another way of saying what you just said, anytime you want something that you don't have, what you're saying is, I would like to incur an obligation. Uh huh. (laughs) What? And that's what people, people get the thing. Like there's that saying, careful what what you wish for, you just might get it because they don't understand that a wish and a dream doesn't have all the details of the obligation. So if you consider what I would like is the obligation of marriage, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people want to manifest a relationship. I would like the obligation of a marriage and a marriage is nothing but a ton of obligations right. and it's right. God's delight, but it's the, in the, and so you have to want the obligation. You have to find that obligation fulfilling. Having a home is, is owning a house is nothing but obligations. And it's an obligation to a being called a house that will dominate and control your life. It will mm-hmm. continuously and, and so on. So if you're, for me, manifesting is just what you're saying. It's like, I don't want this. And you're also going to have to let go of something, but I do want, I don't want this obligation anymore. And that's fine. So like, look at that. What don't you want? What are you letting go of being attached to or having that connection to? Right. I mean, what do you say about this? This the sort of soft way to do it is to is if it's a thing, a car, a you find a symbol that represents what you want, and you put it somewhere where you're going to see it repeatedly, inside of your bedroom door, your desk drawer, and you and then and then every time you see it, you notice it. Like you have the mental, you have the mental habit of not letting it become wallpaper. Every time I go buy it, every time I open the drawer, I notice it and I see if I have feelings about it. And then I put it back. And, and I do a lot of things actually, now that we're talking about it, about that, okay, I have a feelings about it. Are my feelings stuck? Do I need to create more spaciousness? And, and having patience. Yeah. Okay. This is, I'm coming at this moderately slowly. Um, and my experience is that technique, if it's going to work, works within a week, that there'll be some message back about, oh, here's an opportunity coming your way. Do you want it? Yeah. Conversely, I also manifest green lights at stoplights and that's really a different process. Okay. What's that process? Or, um, or parking, you know, and actually 30 years ago, a friend, um, said, well, I just call spot. Because we all have this tape from Dick and Jane, I think. See spot run. Here spot. Here spot. So I'll so I go here spot, and <laughs> it's amazing how fast I'll get a parking space. Here spot. Um, green lights is more like there's a, there's a couple of different things that can that can go on. One is just like I need to get through there. Please let me through there. And I I also because I notice just. Um, 
a fair number of distracted drivers, I also will add to that a, like a thread of energy going ahead of me. And what, what that does psychically is if somebody's being distracted, they'll unconsciously notice a thread of energy going in front of them or past them and go, whoa, somebody's here. They won't consciously know somebody's there, but it'll help them not space out. Yeah. I kind of, when I'm with driving for safety, what I do is I imagine a kind of um, magnetic repellents. You know, when you reverse magnets uh-huh. and they repel from each other, I right. kind of, I kind of invoke a repelling magnet around me so that the cars can't come near me. Nothing comes near me. It mm-hmm. gets mildly repelled. Whenever it comes too close, it gets mildly repelled uh-huh. and doesn't have to meet me. Uh-huh. And that's what I was all I've never personally had a car accident. I'm also a careful driver. Um, and, and like what I'm noticing about these uh, ideas is that they're subtle. They don't take a lot of energy and you don't overdo it. Right. Uh-huh. It's like right. what I say is the minimum effective action. Don't do more than you have to. Don't be, don't be Tim from, uh, uh, <laughs> what's that movie called? The yeah. Holy Grail. Yes. Because when we meet Tim in the Holy Grail, for no reason, this magician spends all his time exploding things. And there's no damn reason it doesn't do anything except for show that he can explode things. (laughs) What's he doing? He's wasting his energy. And then he doesn't use it for the rabbit. It's all confusing. He's like the useless shaman. Shaman. Tim. (laughs) Some call him Tim. Um, So then um, what about the other side of that? where we learn to unmanifest or let go. Because mm-hmm. we forget to do that. We're hoarders. We're magical hoarders, I think, humans. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm thinking about that question. What I, what I think I'm good at, I'm not sure I'm good at unmaking, I'm good at releasing. So it's no longer, so now I'm letting it go out of my field and I'm not calling it back. How do you do that? It's, you know, this, I don't consciously think these questions, but it's kind of the same question. Am I willing to have the consequences of not having that? Am I, and if I'm not, can I get myself there? Am I willing? So there's another phrase that has been really powerful for me magically. Am I willing to have the thing? Am I willing to release the thing? Mm, iffy. Am I willing to become willing to release the thing? And pretty much as soon as I can say, yeah, I'm willing to become willing, I become willing. So it's a magical workaround. I don't know, nothing, no one thing will work for everybody, but that one, if I can identify that even though part of me is not willing, substantially, I think being willing would be a good idea. Well, but, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think that if you're, you're feeling, I think there are times when you need to notice if you've got energy, too much energy in your life or too much sort of like too many things, too many people, too much, even some people have too much money or too many obligations is a way to think about it or too much. Th- another thing too much ruminating about the past. For me, this is a real clue. Too much worrying about what happened in the past or, or you have too many angry people or too many whatever 
or, you know, you're just like trying to get through things. And that's when you got to go, what am I not letting go of? What am I, 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 we do the practice of making and manifesting, but we have to do the practice of unmaking. There's a song that goes, tie a knot, tying a knot in witchcraft is a way to make things and bind things and call things in. But then the other part of the song is tie a knot, untie a knot. And we forget the part about, you know, so many people are doing this manifesting in the muggle world now. It's very popular. They do these vision boards and they vision and conjure up what they want and they get it. And that's fine. Uh, but they forget to let go, to unconjure, to mm-hmm. disintegrate. And I, you know, I have a nightly practice of disintegrating everything. Um, but you don't have to go that far. That's like, that's pretty intense. Like a, I'm a professional. So, <laughs> but you might want to look at what needs, what can be let go of? What in the past can you let go of? What ruminations can you let go of? What um, obligations do you no longer need? One thing that'll help you with that is if you go through menopause and Saturn return, you'll just get rid of everything that you don't need. So if you're not yet in that phase of your life, it's coming and you'll let go then. <laughs> like you're saying, at the end of it, you get you figure out what you want to do. Well, yeah. the when you get the process of going through it is you'll figure out what you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think that's a, a, also a good practice to consider because I think we're all kind of hoarding life and hoarding experiences. And I think it's culturally mandated to hoard an experience, even friends, like how many friends do I have? And how many, how many special moments am I having even experiences? And it takes us out out of being present. Mm -hmm. So that's another, at the other end of that spiritual practice that you and I have been exploring lately that I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about. Yeah, it's a good one. And it's um, years and years ago, you know, people began talking about uh, quantum and eros and um, the void and, and how everything, all, everything is coming into being at the, at the quantum level, also coming out of being, and that it's always, they call it quantum flux, I think, all, all, the, all the substance that arises and then disappears. And, and why would our life be completely different from that? Our life is an expression of that. Um, and our consciousness, it's almost like our consciousness jumps from the crest, crest of wave to crest of wave without catching the, the depth of the trough in between. Mm. Well, you know what? That's fascinating. Yeah. Um. Okay, Larry. Well, you know what? I, I think that's a good note to, to leave on. Larry Savides, our guest for today, uh, with yet another fascinating interview, Larry. Thank you very much. And if Thank you, you haven't heard this interview, I'll give you a second. We'll talk in a second. If you haven't heard the previous interview, go back and look on the webpage at, um, and find that first interview I did with Larry it's really also very fascinating. It's just fascinating to talk to you, Larry. It's always fascinating to talk to you, Pom. Um, both of our minds are sort of vast and wandery. So together we're like a typhoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's just like fun for me to let people know what my life is like. Because this is sort of what my life is like when I hang out with you, which I do a lot. 
So we just yeah. start talking and then I go, I wish I had a recording device right now to record what you just had. <laughs> but you and, did. and you manifested that. I manifested it. And now I have the obligation of going and editing it <laughs> and putting it out there. Okay. So I just thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.